This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I'm here today with Ford Tanner, an expert in Latin American petroleum sector risk and policy and, and all sorts of things. Ford, how are you? I'm well, Hill. Thanks. And Ford, I have to out us here that that I've been chasing you now for two, at least two years, I think, to get you on this <laughs> podcast. And, and until this week, you, you have had a, a good excuse. Um, I don't know what happened. I just I folded. But uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your persistence. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you. As as you know, I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, I don't think I've seen you present in front of a crowd in, in many years, but but I try to attend all of your sessions at Sarah Week or elsewhere when you're presenting. Thank you. Um, yeah. So um, we are here today to talk about Brazil um, and specifically the Brazilian petroleum sector. I would like to talk about Brazil in the World Cup. They're the odds on favorite for the World Cup this year, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but we can save that for another podcast another day. Yes. <laughs> they uh, so, so Brazil this past weekend, I, I guess, had a presidential election, which is now in a runoff. Um, so, so I'd like to get your thoughts on how that impacts the petroleum sector. And the second part that we can get in toward the end of the conversation, the end of this year, December, uh, but Brazil is hosting a bid round where they introduced a permanent offer system, which is a change from uh, prior bid rounds and there's a few different blocks and a, and a few different participants that I'd like to think about and in, in the um, you know as we as move into that so so before sure. we get into the the bid round piece can, can you help frame Brazil it's October 6th of 2022 you know what, what are we looking at coming out of the election as it pertains to oil policy as it pertains to Petrobras as it pertains to gas policy etc absolutely so you know the the election is very consequential, primarily because whoever is president in Brazil has immense power over the petroleum sector. The president appoints the leadership of the oil and gas regulator, the board of the national oil company Petrobras, the National Energy Policy Making Council, the Energy Ministry, which also formulates energy policy. And so there's there's a lot that a president can influence with respect to energy. We've seen that between the leftist and rightist governments in Brazil. Under the Lula era, the, the left-wing workers party definitely put its signature on the petroleum sector. The flips, that, that has flipped really since 2017 with a much more uh, pro-business, pro-foreign investment approach under the rightist governments, uh, including this one, Jair Bolsonaro's government. So big, big kind of different ideological distinction, you know, with the left being more nationalist and the right generally being uh, more pro-business. Either the, the left we often associate here in the U.S. as being um, perhaps nationalist, but more, uh, quote unquote, green and less mm -hmm. supportive of fossil fuels. Is that 
should we not apply that thought process to the left versus right in Brazil? I, I would say that applies much less in Brazil. You know, the, the Workers' Party, uh, which is Lula's political party, has historically been, um, you know, very pro fossil fuels, very pro oil. In fact, there's a phrase when uh, when Lula president, o petróleo é nosso, which means the oil is ours. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very proud of that in Brazil. Um, so yes, on the political left in Brazil, there there are elements that are definitely more uh, kind of uh, climate change sensitive. But um, you know, oil has been a huge way to develop the country, and and Lula really took charge of the oil sector in an effort to to bring you know socioeconomic gains to the country. You saw that under his presidency, uh, trying to use the sector to to create jobs through local content requirements and and you know uh, we can talk about how that went it, it didn't didn't go perfectly there was a big corruption scandal kind of derivative of all of that uh, you know and lula found himself actually in jail <laughs> okay. for a while over it but but that's he's out know, in time to run again for president now right yeah so his convictions were thrown out and and now he's you know he's he's in the clear but yeah from that's kind of a way to think about it. You know, the, there's there's a consensus politically for oil development in Brazil. It's the the difference I would say between the left and the right is who gets to do it. The right is more amenable to having foreign investment play play a major role. The left really wants Petrobras to do everything. Okay, and where does is is there a culture within Petrobras that prefers? one or the other. Uh, I would assume that Petrobras is appreciative of some of the international contribution when working with perhaps, you know, the, the well-financed and or. Yes, I um, think, I think, you know, with the the technocratic skilled people at Petrobras, there's definitely the understanding that the NOC, as capable as it is, and it is, it's, it's the no doubt the biggest and best probably deep water explorer and developer globally. It can't do it all. And mm -hmm. that really goes to to a point I would make about Brazil's resource base, you know, so that Brazil ranks first globally in terms of deep water reserves, 64 billion BOE. That figure is about a fifth of the world's total deep water reserves. So, wow. you know, Brazil can't develop all of that. None of it. Uh, nobody could. So they, they need help. And, and that's been something that this government, the Bolsonaro government, has certainly facilitated through Petrobras's divestment program, massive divestments across the value chain, downstream, midstream, upstream. And that has definitely led to a leaner, more profitable company that that's, you know, deleveraged over the past, you know, probably four or five years. Okay. And we've got what, about three and a half, four weeks for this runoff to work through its process in terms of Lula and Bolsonaro within the election held Sunday, right? Right, right. So we'll we'll know the winner at the 30th of October, but there's some, some interesting things we do know politically now. Uh, with respect to the presidential runoff, I really do think it's going to be competitive. I think the path to victory might be a bit easier for Lula. He led Bolsonaro by about five points in the first round. Uh, however, I would absolutely not count out Bolsonaro. I think he could easily win this thing. 
in the at the legislative level, this is really mm-hmm. critically important. The rightist block, the right of center, far right block, will control about two thirds of the seats in the lower house and about seventy percent of the seats in the Senate. So if Bolsonaro okay. wins, he'll have a very favorable legislative setup to pass any oil sector reforms. There are a couple of those we can talk about that are pending. Conversely, if Lula wins, he's boxed in. Okay. He, you know, the 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 leftist political bloc holds like less than 20% of the seats in both houses. They really didn't do well and 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 worse than kind of was expected. So, you know, regardless of who wins, I think this is a major point I would communicate is I don't see a major sort of policy shift or regression back to the the previous Lula era and the the Dilma Rousseff era, Dilma Rousseff being uh, Lula's kind of handpicked successor as president who was eventually impeached in 2016. Okay, so so for then for, for those looking at the election over the next three or four weeks, one is expecting somewhat of a business as usual, regardless of what happens, um, that there may be perhaps tweaks on the edges, but but there's the overall trend will be the same as it was since Bolsonaro took office. Uh, yeah, I mean, so if Bolsonaro wins, like I was saying, there are a couple of bills. There's one uh, that's been sort of stalled in Congress. It's about using tax royalty contracts for pre-salt areas. Right now, production sharing contracts, PSCs, are the ones that are used for pre-salt areas. That was resultant from a reform that Lula conceived of and Dilma, his successor, implemented under the PT governments like around 2010. The investors, foreign investors, really don't like the PSCs as, as much, primarily because there's more regulatory oversight to monitor things like cost recovery. Also in the PSCs, a majority of the operating committee is comprised of representatives for the government. In, in some of that legislation, the 2010 reform, Petrobras had basically an automatic right to a 30% operated stake in pre-salt projects. Again, left-wing PT government wanting to privilege Petrobras and, and really have Petrobras's dominance codified. That has scaled back a little bit under the subsequent rightist governments, the Michel Temer government who took over from Dilma, and now Bolsonaro's government has kind of carried that forward. So point being, if if Bolsonaro wins, I think the the potential for that bill to allow tax royalty contracts for pre-salt areas gets a lot of life in Congress and I think you know could could easily be passed. Okay. Another bill uh, which the Bolsonaro administration is promoting would allow the government to sell the entirety of its hydrocarbon production rights from those production sharing contracts up front. You know, they'd have to lock in on an oil price agreed price. And that would effectively, you know, remove the government as a stakeholder from those production sharing contracts, many of which have foreign companies participating in them. So that could be something that foreign companies would would really like to see happen because, you know, you take the government out of there, then then those companies really have more uh, leeway in terms of their operational decisions. So what what does that mean when you take the government out? Are you you well, basically, wouldn't stop so paying like royalties, if the, if the government were able to sell its production rights from all of these production sharing contracts and they got paid from mm-hmm. 
from that oil production. There's no need for them to be involved in those contracts. Basically, from their standpoint, the contract is concluded. They got their money. They don't need to be involved anymore. So from that standpoint, you know, uh, the foreign stakeholders in those contracts would basically become, you know, the sole, you know, deciders, if you will, in terms of the operational uh, committee. And you keep all the revenues from that point forward. Who keeps all the revenues? The the operator. That 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 if I take the government out, does that mean that I have to pay any sort of royalty or any sort of involvement of Petrobras? I, I don't else? know how that would be worked out from the standpoint of the minority stakeholders. Um, and and we frankly don't have a lot of detail on that. Okay. because it's it's very much like theoretical at this point. But I think it's interesting that the fact that the Bolsonaro government is actually pushing this and, and you know, if you think about kind of prospects for potential passage of something like that, you know, that's one where you could get cross-party support potentially. Um, if it means, you know, cash infusions immediately for the government, there's nothing that politicians like more than, than <laughs> money for their constituencies. So like everybody could conceivably get on board with something like that, provided the government thought it was getting a good deal. Does that, is any of the driver for that stranded asset risk that, that you hear a lot of long-term oil and gas projects worried about stranded assets in, in a right. quote unquote clean tech world, that would seem to be a potentially a way to front load the value. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that that could that could be uh, a factor there. One thing uh, I think is important when you think about stranded assets, though, is like crude quality. So mm -hmm. one thing we've talked about with Venezuela, neighboring country in South America, heavy oil reserves, you know, the, the likelihood probably of a lot of that being developed is diminishing with each passing day. Brazil like two thirds of the country's crude reserves are like in the medium API range, API yeah. gravity. 20% of the country's crude are light oil. So that's one thing why we're, we're pretty bullish on uh, kind of continued IOC investment. You know, Shell, Total Energies, Equinor, these are the big players. I Well, Equinor is an NOC, but kind of acts like an IOC. Mm -hmm. uh, Repsol, Sinopec. Uh, so some of those those European based companies that have been you know very actively talking about the carbon intensity of their assets and decarbonizing are still very active in Brazil and I think because of this crude oil quality issue. Okay, and size. I mean, the, the, and and, and just the scale exactly. And one thing you know, so production wise, Brazil produces about 2.8 million barrels a day right now. I think one one important thing that we've seen over the past decade is the growth in third-party oil production. So Petrobras is dominant. In 2012, Petrobras produced more than 92% of Brazil's crude. Today, that figure is around 70%. So a 20-point drop, you know, swing toward uh, the third-party producers in a decade is pretty good. And I would say that you know that has. That straddled political uh, administrations, right? Okay. So as much as we talk about kind of the PT, the Workers' Party being nationalist, they started the pre-salt licensing in 2013 with the Libra field. Now, under the PSC 
contract regime, which is more favorable to Petrobras and the state. But at the end of the day, you know, they were the ones who really kicked off the the pre-salt licensing era. Uh, Which led to Brazil in, what was it, 2016 became a net exporter of oil? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, And and certainly poised to grow um, pretty substantially over the next decade. Our view is that Brazil will produce about 4.5 million barrels a day by 2030. And that, from that's two, really going to be three to eight. Is that what you said? From about 2.8 right okay. now. Yeah. Uh, and then the pre salt's really going to drive that. Okay. Certainly on the part of, of Petrobras. Petrobras is, is going to be the biggest driver of that, no question. But a lot of the IOCs I mentioned are going to be very much driving that as well. Well, and a lot of those, so, so the other piece that we wanted to, to get into is the permanent offer system, which is yeah. different from the production sharing that, that you've been talking about. Can, can you talk about why this matters, what what the permanent offer system is, and, and why that has now entered the conversation com- compared to the prior PSC agreements? Well, okay, so permanent offer will use PSCs and tax okay. royalty contracts. So really the, the difference, so permanent offer is a distinction between what you had before, which was just the regularly scheduled bid rounds. Um, mm-hmm. Brazil uh, would have, you know, a standalone bid round where they the government selected blocks and, you know, would see if anybody wanted to bid. <laughs> And those there was a lot of brouhaha around those, and uh, most of them were successful. The the one the last pre-salt PSC bid round from November 2019 was not successful, and there was a big mismatch in expectations in that round. Where mm-hmm. I just think that the government, you know, with its minimum profit oil percentages and signature bonuses and financial guarantees, they were all set too high. Um, and investors kind of balked, and only 20% of the blocks in that particular bid round were awarded. After that happened, obviously, we entered into 2020 with the price crash and just mm-hmm. huge demand destruction. And, and I think the authorities in Brazil used that very responsibly as an opportunity to revisit their thinking. And they decided to move to what we call a permanent offer system, whereby the government puts out, you know, all the blocks that a foreign investor could be interested in. Foreign investors come up and say, well, we're kind of interested this one, this one, and this one. And then uh, based on that, they hold a bid round. And uh, it's it's like the bid rounds of old. You know, there's a, there's a pre-qualifying set of criteria, there's a schedule, and, but it, it's a, it's a more efficient process, I would argue. Because uh, you you eliminate the kind of, you know, would people be interested in this particular asset with companies actually kind of leading on that. And so the the pre-salt auction that's scheduled for bidding, the the bidding date is for uh, the 16th of December of this year. Yeah, that's the inaugural pre-salt auction under this new format, under this permanent offer system. Okay. And and there's 12 blocks that that have been... Selected for right. that system. Yeah, 12, 12 pre-salt blocks, again, under the production sharing contract model. Those blocks span the Campos and Santos basins. 13 companies so far have, have registered to participate. All the Chinese NOCs, but mm-hmm. uh, BP, Chevron, Equinor, uh, Petrogal, Petronas, Cutter Energy, Shell, Total, 
total energy sorry you know so it's a it's a good roster echo patrol from columbia very good roster of companies i would say and you know what one thing that's happened recently they just published the the schedule for the bid round in august and prior to that what with the election uncertainty people were kind of wondering well is this bid round really going to go forward you know the fact that they're going to have the bidding date before the next president takes office, I think is a good thing. It really gets things in motion. You get preliminary awards, you know, provisional awards going. The contracts are going to be signed in March of 2023. So, you know, I would say if Bolsonaro wins, no problem whatsoever. His government has basically formulated this whole thing. Mm-hmm. If Lula wins, there was some concern that, you know, they might try to to cancel or modify the round. I think the fact that, you know, it's going to be further along in the process with people actually submitting bids before he gets sworn into office, provided he's the winner, that that makes it a lot more likely that, you know, it's left alone, that his government doesn't do anything. Plus, if you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for Lula, you know, the first move out of the gate to to do something like that to uh, kind of undermine credibility with his invest with the international investor community. And will the will any of the international investors have a decision before the end of the calendar year? I mean, how, how much time if it starts December sixteenth, is there going to be any tell by December thirty first of of what one operator may, or is it going to be working all toward that that March deadline? Meaning, are we going to kind of get a sense of who's interested or not? Can, can you be assigned a block? Can can your bid be successful before the end of the calendar year? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because uh, so for the, the 16th of December, that's the bid date. And we know, we will know on that date who gets the blocks. Okay. Now, okay, the, so- all I'm saying is the... The actual contracts will not be signed until March 2023, but you know the winners would be announced it well be known, well before the end of the calendar year. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and it looks like you you mentioned some of the some of the operators who are participating. The, the mm-hmm. all, basically all the Chinese and OCs, basically all the European majors. Chevron, interestingly, no Exxon. Um, no Exxon. Yeah. And they've got a lot of work already on their hands, a few, you know, coastal miles away. Mm-hmm. But it, the yeah, no, but that's a good point. I mean, Exxon might might kind of be thinking, well, we've we've got our plate full with Guyana, and we're doing pretty well there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't need to really explore in Brazil. One thing, though, you know, so for this bid round, the big thing going back to kind of re- rethinking assumptions was that the minimum minimum profit oil percentage, average signature bonus, average financial guarantee for the exploration phase, all three of those biddable variables are the lowest of any pre-salt bid round to date. Okay. Substantially lower. So, you know, one thing we've been talking about in our group is does this create an opportunity for some of these IOCs who have committed to decarbonizing and kind of, you know, winding down frontier exploration to have kind of one last roll of the dice? And I think so, because if you think about it, like for this bid round, the the average signature bonus is like $20 million. The average financial guarantee for the exploration phase is about $20 million. You know, in previous bid rounds, those respectively could be as high as like 500 million 
80, 70 million. So if you're a well-capitalized company like those that have signed up to participate are, you know, it's it's not a huge uh, risk to take uh, financially to explore some of these blocks. Maybe you don't find anything. It's no love lost, really. But maybe you find Eliza discovery, right? Mm-hmm. Or, so yeah, that, I think that this is an opportunity because of the low low entry and exit costs for companies to to do some good exploring. Do you expect any other participants to to join? I think what four joined within the past few weeks or months, maybe what was September yeah, at Equinor? Five signed up kind of in a second wave once mm-hmm. we got more clarity on the schedule. You know, I wouldn't really expect any any major additions. I think kind of the the usual suspects are all there. Not based on based on kind of who's participated in in the pre-salt uh, auctioning in the past, yeah. Okay. Well, so so where maybe just to to, to wrap things up, what what are you over the next? Obviously, we're paying attention to the presidential election over the coming three or four weeks, and then as we prepare for for the World Cup and then for the bid round in December, what what are some of the things that that we should be paying attention to as we're looking for headlines or as we see headlines hitting either work that that you're doing? So 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 just to to, to give you a bit of a plug here, but you're working on the petroleum economics team here at, at S&P Commodity Insights, and we can through the energy sense at ihsmarket.com email address, we, we can talk to people more about that and we'll put more information mm-hmm. on the liner notes. But but outside of what you're publishing yourself, what, what are some things we should be paying attention to? And what, what are you watching as you look to analyze some of these coming activities? Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess one thing I would want to leave the listeners with is I, I really don't expect, even if Lula wins, a real return to what we saw under his government and his successor Dilma's government. I mean, I think there's a lot of concern, understandably, about the the workers party approach to petrobras mm-hmm. so th- there is a risk that you know that they would try to kind of recapitalize petrobras to the tune that they they did with the five year plans back in the like 20 early 2010s that were like 215 billion those were reduced to like around 50 something billion under the kind of center right governments again petrobras became a much leaner company and but 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 it is possible that that some of that could happen. So, you know, Congress, if we think about kind of the institutions in Brazil, Congress has to approve a lot of things, but they don't have to approve Petrobras's budget. So the Workers' Party government could kind of try to recapitalize Petrobras. I, I don't think that they're going to be able to do what they did, you know, a, a decade plus ago. But could it become a company where that's a little more stretched? Yes. And could that have uh, some impacts on some of its partners? Yes, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the six largest foreign producers in Brazil, Shell, Petrogal, Repsol, Equinor, Petronas, Total, all of those companies' production is largely tied to facilities operated by Petrobras. So, you know, one thing we saw about a decade ago or a little less was, you know, when Petrobras was stretched operationally, financially, its partners kind of suffered as a result mm-hmm. of that because you know they got pushed back in the queue, et cetera. So I don't I don't expect, you know, a Lula government to lead to, you know, any any sort of debacle like like we saw with the corruption scandal and the service sector issues. 
But that's one risk that I do think is there. From a policy standpoint, I really don't see major changes under a Lula administration. I think it's going to be more kind of a status quo. Uh, it's in it's in the Workers' Party interest to have you know continued upstream licensing because they can generate they can generate money for the government that way. So th- th- those would kind of be my final thoughts. When you I know you focus on the above ground risk issues, but but of these twelve blocks, is there reason to be enthusiastic about one or more? I mean, Brazil was some of the hugest discoveries since since I've been around. Mm-hmm. We're off, off Brazil. Is that I know we can't say it's certain. Uh, is it a reasonable probability to expect some some big finds coming out of this? I think so. You know, some of these blocks are near very large fields. Petrobras has already exercised its uh, so-called preferential rights to the minimum 30% operated stake for two blocks, Agua Marinha and Norte de Brava. Mm -hmm. So we know those are gone. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of kind of overall percentage of blocks being awarded, so let's say, you know, the 2019 bid round that didn't do well, 20% of those were awarded with the the big roster of companies, the the much improved fiscal terms, I think you could see easily half of these blocks potentially more getting awarded. So I think they are gonna have a much better outcome. All right, well, that's a good place to leave it, and I will let you off the hot seat and then uh, start chasing you again here in a few months for an update or, or perhaps a year. I, I know you're hard to pin down. <laughs> uh, so, so thanks so much for, for making time, and I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Hill. I appreciate it. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit us at spglobal.com. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for S&P Global Commodity Insights on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at spglobal.com. <laughs>